there's so many stories on Route 66 that um, are going to disappear. And so one of the most valuable things I think about traveling Route 66 is to hear people's stories. That may be the most magical part of Route 66. That's Jim Livingston. An Amarillo-based photographer, he's just one of over 100 people I spoke with in creating this season, which found me driving Route 66 from Oklahoma to the Pacific Coast. End to end, that's a journey of roughly 1,500 miles, but if my car's odometer is to be believed, I drove 6,845. And how did this come together? I wish I could share some inspiring Genesis story or Eureka moment, but if there was one, I honestly can't remember. It's also not like I'd ever made this trip or visited any of these places before. Yet it was absolutely something I felt called to do. Why? I don't think I'm alone in saying that the name Route 66 has a kind of magic. For some, the mere sound of it calls to mind images of muscle cars and neon. For others, the words of Kerouac and songs of Guthrie. But where did this myth come from? What can be found in driving it today? And what is Route 66 to begin with? I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. I, I grew up uh, in West St. Louis County, and I grew up off an original alignment of 66. That was my home. There were people who would come off Route 66. Uh, they were what my father would call men of the road. And some of them had just uh, gotten out of the war and for one reason or another didn't have their bearings. And, and, and But they'd come one or two at a time. They would go to our, our back door, side door of, of this house, and they'd knock, and my mother uh, would open the door and, and they would doff their cap, and they would politely say to my mother, always, do you have some work that I can do for you in exchange for some food? And I would guarantee you my mother was always good at finding work. And then they would come up and my mother would give them food. It, it could be a, a bowl of soup and a sandwich or some leftover stew, a piece of fruit, maybe even sometimes coffee. And they would take this grub down near our garden and sit under these mimosa and pin oak trees in the shade and having washed up and eat their lunch. And then this was what would happen. My mother, who was always clad during the day in an apron, was at her place at the sink, a kitchen sink, and there was a window there and we looked out and we could see them eating. And then my mother and I would make up stories about these fellows and try to decide who they were and where they were going. Then they'd come up and deliver the, the dirty dishes and my mother would take them and they would thank her and they'd maybe wink at me and then they'd tail off back to the mother road. And almost as soon as they left, 
my mother would turn to me and she'd say, Michael, you never ever turn anyone away from your door if they come to your door. They may be angels, angels in disguise. And those words have stuck with me forever and ever and ever. If you're a Pixar fan like me, you might recognize that voice as Michael Wallace, whom John Lasseter handpicked to play the sheriff of Radiator Springs in the movie Cars. A journalist, historian, and author of 17 books, he boasts three Pulitzer nominations and a mantle heavy with awards. Yet he traces many of these accomplishments to those early years by the kitchen window, as it was there he first discovered the art of storytelling. And his name today is inextricably linked with Route 66. This is the road I grew up on. This is the road I, I learned how to drive a car and got my first car, a little 55 Plymouth in Pacific, Missouri, right on Route 66. Did my first courting on Route 66. When I was in the Marine Corps, I hitchhiked Route 66 back and forth California to St. Louis. In the 60s, if I was in uniform toting a sea bag, I could get a ride easily. When I'd come up from Camp Pendleton to Los Angeles and I'd see those 66 signs, I felt like I was home. Recounting his days as a hitchhiking serviceman, Michael's memories are infused with the pop music he heard on the car radios that drove him across the country. Acts like The Beatles, Supremes, Righteous Brothers, Bob Dylan. But in a 2019 speech he gave at the Tulsa City County Library, he said it was during this time he also heard one song that continues to haunt him to this day. Once I thanked God for my treasure Now like rust it corrodes And I can't help from blaming your going On the coming The coming some time before I learned that that song, written by Billy Ed Wheeler, actually mourned the loss of a lover in an unspoiled forest destroyed by wealthy robin barons. To me, it was and always will be about the loss of my revered old roads. It was about the five interstate highways that were being built right then from Chicago to Santa Monica, to try to take the place of Route 66. To me, the coming of the roads meant the coming of the super slab. We all knew they were coming. We all knew they were necessary. But we also knew that they broke our hearts. When it comes to super slabs, few are as massive, monotonous, or treacherous as Interstate 40 which a friend of mine simply describes as one of the worst stretches of highway in America. Its asphalt claims a few hundred lives and carries nearly 8 million fume-belching big rigs over its 2,500 miles each year. Moments of beauty are fleeting, and driving past the same golden arches and Hampton Inns exit after exit, it's easy to miss the uniqueness of towns like Albuquerque, while others are past altogether. This town died September 22nd, 
1978 at about 2.30 in the afternoon. It died for 10 long years. People, people in general don't know what it is to be forgotten by the world for 10 long years. Seligman, Arizona sits in the high desert on old Route 66, about halfway between Flagstaff and Kingman. A former railroad stop, driving in you'll be greeted by a series of Burma shave signs and might want to grab a bowl of chili at the Roadkill Cafe, whose motto famously proclaims, you kill it, we grill it. But when it comes to elder statesmen, perhaps none in this town of 446 command more respect than Angel Delgadillo who was born here in 1927. My father, Angel Delgadillo, and my mother, Juana, left Mexico in 1916 with brother Juan and another older child that died on the way. They're coming to Seligman. Pancho Villa is getting honorary in Mexico. My father and mother had a dream. They recognized America as a land of milk and honey, where the sky is the limit, where if you have an idea, no one can stop you. No one except yourself. Thin in stature and dressed in a light gray jacket, button-down gingham shirt, and Route 66 ball cap, Mr. Delgadillo sports a wide, toothy grin and twinkle that belies his 94 years. A barber by trade who only put down his razor in 2020. He's speaking with me from the perch of the chair his father bought for his old shop. The room's walls are covered floor to ceiling with cards he's collected from patrons over the last 70 years, alongside old portraits and his degree from Barber College in Pasadena. This framed yellowed certificate stands as testament to Delgadillo's abiding belief in the American dream. But he also readily acknowledges that times haven't always been easy, and will tell you he remains in Seligman today due to a twist of fate. My father and my mother owned a 1926 Model T Ford. They had a plan. Somehow or other, they scraped up a flatbed trailer and all of us 11, and we're going to California. But because my, br- my brother Juan played the valve trombone for the Hank Becker Orchestra, he got my brother Juan a job for the Santa Fe as a laborer. My brother Joe told me that we were all loaded, the windows had been boarded. We were just anticipating leaving, all but loaded, just ready to turn the key on to leave. She says, when Hank Becker came running across the street, Juan, Juan, you don't have to leave. I got your job on the railroad. And Brother Juan fed us all for two whole years. Like his brothers, Angel joined the orchestra before picking up his shears and eventually opened a pool hall in the space adjoining his parlor. He cleared out the tables many years ago to accommodate a gift shop that's managed today by his beloved daughter, Myrna. But for her, this place is about far more than t-shirts, magnets, and shot glasses. This is, this is the place that Route 66 got its historic rebirth. This is 
a place full of people's memories. People leave a little, they take a little. So when they come here, it's just not a gift shop, but it's more of a museum of the different people who have made the pilgrimage throughout the years. And when people come in here, they look up and they go, wow, look at all this stuff. And, and it's just a, a part of um, Route 66, and it kind of tells a story of the people who have come and gone. Many do make pilgrimages to this store, as Angel is revered as the guardian of Route 66. But before getting into why that is, and how this town far from Chicago or L.A. came to be hailed as the birthplace of historic Route 66, we must ask how it was born in the first place. So... Reese Martin, president of Oklahoma's Route 66 Association, gives me a brief history lesson. So Route 66 was established in 1926 along with the rest of the federal highways. Uh, right around that time, the federal government looked around and said, hey, you know what, this automobile's going to be a big deal. We should really start preparing for it. You had a lot of named highways like the Lincoln Highway, the Ozark Trail, things like that. But there was no federal organized highway system. So group of people got together and designated different highway numbers and Highway 66 is the highway that went from Chicago out to Los Angeles, California. So Cyrus Avery is considered the father of Route 66. He's one of the men that sat on that federal highway board that came together in the 20s and designated numbers and federal highways and all that. Um, being from Tulsa, of course, Cyrus Avery had an interest in making sure Tulsa was well represented and said, you know, course, if you draw a straight line between Chicago and L.A., it does not touch Oklahoma. It does not touch Missouri. It goes through Nebraska and Colorado, and it's, it's you know, different. And when they were coming together to try to figure out, okay, Chicago to L.A., that makes sense. How should we, you know, route this highway? He said, you know, there's this brand new state-of-the-art bridge in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that is the safest place to cross the Arkansas River. And uh, was able to lobby for that, convince them, and because of his advocacy, that road goes uh, through Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas Panhandle, and on, on out. So originally, they wanted all east to west highways to have even numbers, and so they said, Highway 60, great. There were even a couple of limited maps printed up with 60 on this road. But Kentucky threw a fit. They said, we don't have one of these big highways. We want 60. Uh, so uh, they were in Springfield, Missouri, uh, which is hailed as the birthplace of Route 66, because that's when they got together and said, well, 66 sounds good too. Let's do that. And so that's where the official telegram was sent, saying we're going to number it 66 instead of 60. So that covers some of its origins, but writer Jim Hinckley is quick to comment on its legend. Of course, we've got other roads, you know, that are uh, more historic, more scenic, even more mom-and-pop stuff. But something happened to Route 66 somewhere along the line where it just morphed into this uh, almost magic place where the past and present blend seamlessly. And it's the road of dreams. You know, I had a gentleman from Czech Republic talk to me once, and it was really quite a moving deal. He talked about growing up behind the Iron Curtain and uh, watching bootleg copies of Easy Rider. He said that the open road, motorcycles, Harley-Davidson's, came to, to symbolize freedom, but particularly Route 66. It came to symbolize, to his generation, the freedom that the Statue of Liberty represented to a previous generation. I thought that's pretty intense. How did 66 capture all this mystique? Michael Wallace will tell you it's owed to a matter of timing. It, it almost became icon iconic from the start because the location of the road bookend by two big cities, the 
city of big shoulders, Chicago, all the way to L.A., cut through eight states, 2,400 plus miles, three time zones. It really was the first big connector that way. Then we had these incarnations, and these are what really made Route 66. The Depression and Dust Bowl. It was a one-two punch, and it impacted much of today's Route 66. People poured into the road, and hence it earned the name that Steinbeck so aptly, aptly gave it in that great, very important novel, The Grapes of Wrath, The Mother Road, this road, this nurturing road. Highway 66 is the main migrant road. 66, the long concrete path across the country, waving gently up and down on the map from Mississippi to Bakersfield, over the redlands and the graylands, twisting up into the mountains, crossing the divide and down into the bright and terrible desert, and across the desert to the mountains again, and into the rich California valleys. 66 is the path of a people in flight, refugees from dust and shrinking land, from the thunder of tractors and shrinking ownership, from the desert's slow northward invasion, from the twisting winds that howl up out of Texas, from the floods that bring no richness to the land and steal what little richness is there. From all of these, the people are in flight, and they come into 66 from the tributary side roads, from the wagon tracks and the rutted country roads. 66 is the mother road, the road of flight. From the drought land and the south land Come the wife and kids and me It's a hot old dusty highway For a dust bowl refugee But my granny, she was from Ada, Oklahoma. And they came right through, they came out Route 66. I mean, they came out in these old trucks that just barely would make it. And you got some hills to climb if you ever drove from Needles uh, up to Barstow, you got one hard hill to climb there and it's hot. And that and it reaches 120 degrees out there on that desert. And then people, they had a hard road to hoe. Jimmy Phillips is a native Californian. Born in Bakersfield, he grew up in the weed patch government camp written of in the Grapes of Wrath. And while he's always called the Central Valley home, he proudly answers to the title of Oki and remains forever grateful for the sacrifices of those who raised him. You know what? They was working back then, and this would be around 19, probably 30, 1932, 3, 4. They was working for... Um, a teaspoon of lard and a cup of flour. That's what they'd work a full day for. Just anything to eat. And yeah, they said, well, why did you come all the way out here to find this? Well, because they didn't even have that in Oklahoma. They couldn't even get anything. This is Dust Bowl. We're talking this dust blue. During this time, many young men found shelter, food, a meager salary, and dignity by joining Roosevelt Citizens Conservation Corps, whose Improvements and sites continue to line the route today. But while perhaps the most popular of New Deal programs, 
It was quickly dissolved when circumstances summoned these boys for other duties. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The road immediately answered the challenge again and became a military road. It became a road of men in arms. And training bases from the Great Lakes all the way down the road, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, El Reno, Oklahoma, all the way out to California. Patton, blood and guts. Patton is out in the Mojave of 66. When the war ended in 1945 and the GIs came home, there was great prosperity here in this country. They were able to buy homes. We had this building boom, baby boom, new cars. And there we have the great heyday of the road. It was a time to, uh, you know, hit the road in your 57 Chevy or your Corvette or whatever. Perhaps no one captured the spirit of these times better than actor, musician, and songwriter Bobby Troop, who hit the road with his wife Cynthia in 46. Their drive became the stuff of a legend that daughter Cinny shares with me over the phone from her pad in Malibu. He's a Marine officer uh, was in Saipan and came back and, you know, decided that he wanted to um, see if he could make it in the music business, writing songs and doing that instead of, you know, running the business, the the family store. They're leaving, um, you know, Harrisburg driving. And she said, I I think it was Route 40. I mean, making that up. She says, honey, why don't you write a song about Route 40? And he said, that's silly. We're going to get on 66 in Chicago and take that all the way. So she said, and this is, you know, of course, it's within the title of the song. Oh, okay, Route 66. And as she said, a lyricist, I'm not, but I'm going six, mix, wicks, licks, kicks, kicks. Get your kicks, which was a hip expression at the time. And she, so she had that line, and he loved it. He said, oh, God, that's great. I love that. I like that. Get your kicks on Route 66. And he apparently wrote some of it, you know, and <clears throat> as they're driving out, he gets to L.A. and he got out the map. It's in my house and there's a copy of it at the Smithsonian um, and, you know, kind of circled the, the you know, the, the, the cities that are in the, you know, Kingman, Barstow, San Bernardino, the, the cities that are in it. And um, so he looked at it and then, you know, looked at what he wanted and made the rhymes and, you know, and all that. Brought it to Nat King Cole, who recorded it. I think it was an immediate hit. And um, bought, as I say, bought the house that, you know, uh, I think it was $20,000, the house that I grew up in. But while the song's first and definitive version belongs to Nat King Cole, a terrible irony exists in the fact that he and other drivers of color would have had a hard time getting their kicks. As for them... Driving the road during this often romanticized era could prove downright perilous. When you think of, you know, tailfin Cadillacs and milkshakes and that kind of American graffiti time period, you know, that's fine and good, and that's what Route 66 is often associated with. But during those same times, you have, you know, African-American travelers that didn't have nearly as many places they could stop um, and feel safe. Um, Native American culture, for the longest time, was 
for lack of a better term, lampooned and, and exaggerated for the traveler, but it didn't really represent the authentic cultures of these areas that the road goes through. One place the road goes through is Lupton, Arizona, where David Yellowhorse grew up on Navajo land. Skirting the New Mexico state line, it was here in the shadows of a red rock cliff his family opened the Yellowhorse Trading Post, which remains in business to this day. Yeah, they had a little rug stand, you know, uh, a rug stand where they sold Navajo rugs and petrified wood. That's what they sold there. I remember uh, some, of the, some, some of the people that were further back east, my dad and my uncles, they found out through talking with them, they said, my, my, my wife didn't want to stop, you know, because we, you know, we heard about Indians, you know, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I cautiously stopped anyway. I was curious, you know, and it's really good relation, you know, it was really good. I'm glad we did. And, uh, my dad and my uncles asked him, really? You, you really thought, you know, you are kind of hostile over here? He goes, yeah, yeah. So my dad and my uncles were thinking about this and they go, that can't, that's something we got to have. That can't, we got to let these people know we're okay. So they started repainting their signs. They came up with this slogan that said, friendly Navajo ahead, chief yellow horses, stop at chief yellow horse ahead. It says, we know scalp them pale face, just scalp them wallet. And that actually got people laughing. And they said, well, it can't be that bad. So that that helped get uh, the, those folks that were scared more comfortable. And they started stopping and they find out these folks are pretty cool. I was, I was just as interested in them as they were me. They, they always talked about the the cities they came from, which I'd never seen before. I asked him one time, Dad, I said, you're out here working on this young man's truck, you know. I, I said, you're always helping people on the highway here. Why do you do that? I'm just, I'm curious. He says, well, son, he says, my dad told me one time when I was a kid your age, when I was just a young man, he told me, Frank, he says, this this road is paved with gold. He's talking about Route 66. He says this gold, this 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 road's paved with gold. You take good care of them people on it, and they'll take good care of you. But the fate of the road's golden age was sealed when Dwight Eisenhower kickstarted a freeway building boom that, with each expansion, forever altered the communities they passed through and by. This is something that Bobby Lee, owner of Amarillo's Big Texan Steak Ranch, remembers well. We started on Route 66 and uh, had to move from Route 66 because once I-40 opened, I mean, my dad's business went to, I mean, the next day in 1968 when it opened, I-40 had bypassed it there. There was, it just was, the dining room was empty and he had eight kids and a, and a payroll to meet. And so he was, he was frantic to do something about it. And, and he was smart enough and shrewd enough to be able to get off there keep the place the same and move it to the new location on I-40. Most, however, did not have the ability to pick up and move. And the coming of these new roads hit communities like Seligman especially hard. The day before we bypassed, the town of Seligman was alive and well. History says that there was 9,000 automobiles using the street every 24 hours. We were bypassed at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon Traffic stopped, just like 
it was forbidden to come into town. Businesses closed up. Business came to a crawl. It was hard to put beans on the table. It was sad. Like, this is not America. This sadness would turn to anger sometime later, when Angel's brother revealed to him that his town hadn't even been dignified with a sign. So one day he comes in to get a haircut. says, Angel, did you know there isn't one mileage sign about Seligman between Flagstaff and Ash Fork, a distance of 50 miles? I says, Juan, quit joking with me. You can joke with your customers. I know different. He worked on me and worked on me. I says, Juan, I don't believe you. You're, you like the joke. He says, okay, next time you go to Flagstaff, check it out. Lord have mercy. Not one sign that says Seligman, 68 miles Seligman. Not one sign. And we were, it, it was tough. But not long after, Angel began to notice there were a few drivers who still kept finding their way into Seligman and his barber shop. You don't know what you have until you lose it. I says, what the hell are you looking for? I told myself, you got a highway that you wanted? What are you doing here in Sligman? It finally dawned on me. They were looking for America of yesterday. They began to miss we, the average daily American people. And there's where I got my idea of how to get the economy back to Seligman. And my simple thought was, we asked the state to make Route 66 historic from Seligman to Canaan. And after forming the Historic Route 66 Association February the 18th, 1987, right here in Seligman, we asked the state to make it historic. And guess what? We never got an answer. Totally ignored. We continue to be ignored. But you know what? Half a dozen of us became the nucleus. And we, five or six people, grew up during the Depression when it was double tough. We grew up, we did not know the word no. The state finally made it historic November of 1987. And we asked them to do it in March. So in giving Route 66 a historic rebirth, The beautiful thing is that we have, in as many words, set an example you can't wish for, you can't beg for, even money can buy for. But if you go out and you believe in yourself, you can get the job done. Today, every state along Route 66 can claim their own associations based on the model spearheaded by Angel and the people of Seligman. Historic designations and preservation efforts are ubiquitous, as are the countless travelers who choose to exit the interstates each year in search of iconic shield signs. You can still drive more than two-thirds of the road, and some might even argue that despite the nostalgia, the journey is as enjoyable as it's ever been. But what anyone who's made this trip knows is that the heart and soul of Route 66 is found in the people who live and work in the places you'll find along the way. It's as true today as it was in 1926, as it was following its decommission in the 1980s, when Michael Wallace set to work on writing his definitive book, Route 66, 
the mother road. So on one fine, very cold, windy Oklahoma day, out in Clinton, Oklahoma, quintessential Route 66 town, we pulled into Phillips 66 station to fuel up. And a guy came out to fill my tank. And he's pumping the gas, and I got out. And we chatted there in the wind. We talked about all the important things of the day. Sports, weather, kind of avoided politics. He said, what are you doing out here? And I said, oh, I'm writing a, a book. And he said, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about Route 66. He said, you've got to be kidding me. He was just shaking his head. And I said, no, it's, it's about Route 66. He said, well, who in the world would want to read a book about an old highway? So I said, well, pal, let me ask you, why don't you tell me about your Route 66? He said, I will. That's Route 66 right there. Uh, this is my gas station. I've been pumping gas here a long time. My granddaddy started this station in 1927, year after Route 66 was created, right down this road. My grandpa used to tell me about the early 30s, and it took so long, took 10 years to pave the road. And he remembered the work crews coming through here. These men naked from the waist up, just glistening in the sun with drag lines and mules, carving out that road right there. My dad went on to own this business, ran it very good, except he took time out to go to the Pacific in World War II. And he came back and he and his brother picked up on it. Now I own it and my sister. And uh, I reckon someday it'll be our children's place. Yeah, Route 66. He said, right around that bend there, the way that curve goes. I went to Clinton High School. I was a fighting red tornado, and we were state champions, just like we are right now. Up there is a graveyard where my folks are buried, where my grandpa and grandma are buried, where there's a little baby girl that we lost that's buried up there. And down the road there, down by Pop Hicks, that Greyhound bus station. And that's where I left Clinton. The only time I really left when I was drafted. And that bus took me right up 66 to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, right on 66. And when I got back from Vietnam, by God, I think I was on that same bus when it stopped right down there and I got off. It didn't take long before I married my high school sweetheart and we raised our family right here in Clinton. About then a big yellow school bus rolled right by us, right down there. And that guy just lit up in eternity. He said, all of my grandkids are right there in that bus. I had not said one single word this whole time. Just about when I was ready to slip back in that car and join Suzanne, this man stopped me, came over to me, and I could see, despite the wind, that his eyes 
had tears. And he looked me straight in my eyes and he said, I'm really glad you're writing this book. I really am glad. Shook his hand, got in the car, turned the engine over and drove west. And I had gone about 200 yards when this feeling washed over me. A feeling that I have to this very day, that that road would never die. I felt it in my heart and in my bones. And that's exactly what happened. The road is alive. The road is alive. And I invite you to ride along with me this season as we'll explore how its past, present, and future are revealed through the people and places you'll find driving it today. Thanks to all who contributed to this episode. Some will be back for more this season. In the meantime, if you're interested in hearing longer extended interviews with Michael Wallace, Angel Delgadillo, and Jim Hinckley, check out Anthony Arno's Route 66 podcast, which provides a fine companion. Jim also has a podcast of his own called Wake Up With Jim, and recommend following him on Facebook at Jim Hinckley's America. I'll be including links to him and others in the show notes. Thanks as well to actor J.R. Robinson for his reading of Steinbeck, and the great Bobby Earl Smith for his performance of Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Refugee. He's represented in last season's premiere, and a solo bonus episode, which I hope you'll check out if you haven't already. Profuse thanks as well to Ray Benson and Asleep at the Wheel for their killer rendition of Get Your Kicks on Route 66. I recorded that live at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, and you'll be hearing more about them and that place later this season. Also, a special shout out to Max Krause and Emily Young for their recordings of The Coming of the Roads and our theme music. But most of all, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. We have a great season ahead, and doing that guarantees you will never miss an episode. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more... Vanishing Postcards. <laughs>